Department of Archives and History for the special exhibit, Spirits of the Passage, the story of the transatlantic slave trade, open now through August 11th. Details at twomississippimuseums.com slash spirits. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, April 11th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, MPB's Alexandra Watts toured flooded parts of the Mississippi Delta. We'll bring her conversation with the Army Corps of Engineers. Then find out what you can do to keep highway workers safe on the job. And in this week's book club, award-winning author Joe Watson-Hackle takes us smack dab in the middle of maybe. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Mississippi River Commission is holding public meetings to hear about how the river affects communities, including the Mississippi Delta, which has seen record flooding. The commission has been holding a series of public meetings to hear residents' concerns about not only the flooding, but the condition of river communities. On a boat tour of flooded-affected areas yesterday, MPB's Alexandra Watts spoke with Michael DeRozier of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. He says it could be months before the extent of flood damage in Mississippi is known. The gauge uh, at Vicksburg in this particular event came up uh, a little higher than uh, 51 feet, uh, which is a pretty significant flood on the Mississippi River itself. And on, on about the 15th of February, we closed the steel bayou structure gate. Um, we do that because the, the, the river is rising and the Mississippi River will push up the Yazoo River into the backwater area and cause flooding if, if we don't uh, close that structure. Uh, but when we do that, uh, we capture interior uh, drainage rainfall in the Yazoo backwater area. And we've had a significant amount of interior rainfall as part of this overall flooding event. And we've seen the backwater area flooding elevations at historic levels there. So it's been a significant flooding event for us on on, uh, both sides of the structure. Um, It's involved uh, about, we've had about 70 team members that have been committed. That's starting to, uh, we're starting to dial back somewhat from that as the the water levels begin to recede. Uh, But at one point we had about 70 team members committed directly to flood fight events on a daily basis. How long do you believe it's going to take um, for the water to recede to get it to a manageable level? We still don't know. We know that it's going to be weeks for the uh, the water and the backwater uh, area to fully drain out and, and things to completely return to normal. Our, we, we watch very closely rainfall and river level forecasts. We, have, we feel that we have pretty good reliability with the forecasts uh, just a few days out in, into the future. So what we're seeing right now is with, with the, the recent rainfall over this, this past weekend, uh, we think we'll see the Mississippi River kind of stay current. Uh, the gauge at Vicksburg right now is about 46 feet. Uh, we'll see the backwater area stay uh, consistent. We're, uh, we're looking at the gauge at about 95.7 feet now, a foot and a half or so below uh, where we were just a, just a short while ago. But we think we'll hold at those levels uh, for the next few days, and we'll continue to watch uh, very closely the, the rainfall forecasts um, that are going to dictate uh, what happens in the coming days and weeks. 
And when you have areas flooding, especially in the Mississippi Delta, what does that mean for agriculture? What does that mean for business and even larger scale for communities like schools and police departments? Um, well, I, I mean, I can certainly give you a few examples. So uh, the, the community of Eagle Lake, uh, for example, they were under a mandatory evacuation, uh, largely because emergency services would have such a difficult time responding uh, to that area uh, if, if there was an emergency uh, requiring their their response uh, and their involvement. Um, with uh, the backwater flooding, we're seeing about, we've seen about 500,000 acres of property that has been flooded. Uh, that, uh, that has impacted some very uh, uh, primary agricultural uh, uh, areas, um, and, and certainly it's going to have an impact on planting and harvesting cycles uh, for the farmers in the Mississippi Delta this year. This whole, this particular event this year kind of kicked off with a, a, a nine-inch average rainfall event in northern Mississippi. We've got four primary flood control reservoirs in that area. Uh, that uh, were filled to near capacity, um, but had they not captured that rainfall, uh, we've run some calculations. There would have been flows in in the Greenwood area that could have totaled about 300,000 cubic feet per second. As it is with the with the flood control reservoirs, we're able to hold most of that water back and and meter out about 35,000 cubic feet per second. Uh, so I think that's a great example of the value uh, that these civil works projects and, and the flood risk management infrastructure provides. And have you seen more people um, at these recent meetings because of the flooding that's been happening, or is it about the same amount? I would say for the public meetings, uh, this, is a, this is a pretty consistent um, uh, a, a, a attending group. Uh, but certainly with the flooding, we've, we've had a number of public meetings around the Mississippi Delta area where we've had uh, dozens and even hundreds of, of people come out um, and in partnership with our levy boards, in partnership with our, our local communities, with the state, and, and in particular the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency, uh, we've been able to in, engage the public, talk to them about what we're seeing talk to them uh, about uh, what we're anticipating uh, and help them make decisions um, so that they're staying safe and, and best able to, to deal with these floods. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to emphasize the importance of working with the Corps of Engineers as part of a, a local, state, and federal team. It takes a complete and dedicated team effort, uh, engagement with the public, communicating the value of what we do, uh, to communities, to our members of Congress, to other appropriators, uh, so that we can continue to, to advance the great work that we're doing here in, in delivering value to the region and to the nation. Michael DeRozier of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. More immediately, a, lev a levee in Chickasaw County collapsed after months of rain flooding farmland and washing out part of a county road. Crews with the Tom Bigbee River Valley Water Management District surveyed the area, focusing on building the levee back up so farmers can plant crops this spring. Chickasaw County Road Manager Doug Winter says the large amount of rain the region has seen in recent months weakened the levee over time.
Chickasaw County alone had 38 roads damaged during heavy rains in late February. Major General Richard Kaiser is president of the Mississippi River Commission. He tells our Alexandra Watts more about the work of the commission and its impact on communities along the river. We are in Rosedale, Mississippi. It's a wonderful town right along uh, the Mississippi River. And if someone were to come on this boat and they walked into this meeting, how would you describe this meeting? What's it about? But what they would have seen is American civics and democracy in action. And so really the Mississippi River Commission was established in 1879 and we are chartered by Congress to go up and down the Mississippi River and listen to Americans, listen to the public and their concerns about the river and what can we best do to manage this river to make it the most effective uh, river that we can for this country. And that's what we did today. So we had about 15 registered speakers and we got to listen to them and I will take their comments and we'll go back to Congress and let them know what we heard and what we think can be done for this river to make it better. What are some of the concerns that you've heard from people? Well, it varies region by region. So in the northern parts, when we were up in Memphis in that region, uh, people very thankful for all the great work that's been done. And so we just passed a historic flood. This was number two flood of record if you live in Red River Landing. It was number three if you live in Cairo, Illinois. But all up and down this river, it was a historic flood. Now, in areas where the Mississippi River and Tributaries Project is complete, it has worked extremely well, and people have received all the benefits, and they've stayed dry. But as we move to this region, where we find that the Mississippi River and Tributaries Project is not complete, um, people have experienced historic flooding. And so those are the concerns we hear. We also hear a lot of thanks uh, for the monies that Congress has provided for us to make repairs after floods. It's made a huge difference. And why aren't some of the projects completed? I know they're completed in other areas, but maybe why in the Delta are they kind of moving at a different pace? Well, there's a variety of reasons why projects don't get completed. Sometimes it's uh, monies that are available or not. Um, Sometimes it's environmental concerns. Uh, And sometimes uh, there's just more uh, research needed to determine if this is the most effective way to get a project done. And so there's a variety of reasons that uh, projects are not complete. I think that's the best way to put it. What would happen if we had nothing in place, if there were no projects going on, if it was just left to nature here in the Mississippi Delta? How would that impact communities if there was no protection? You wouldn't have communities along the Mississippi River, plain and simple. Uh, I'd invite you to go take a look at that map I displayed at the beginning of the session. It was created by Dr. Fisk, who mapped out the historic channels of the Mississippi River since ever since time began and the river was there. And what you'll find is a meandering river like this goes where it wants to, when it wants to, and you would not be able to live, work, or operate a business within about an 80-mile swath of the river. So Rosedale's here today because the river stayed in its banks. If we didn't have the levee systems, uh, this town might not be here tomorrow. And so that's what I would tell you is without what the, the improvements we've done to the Mississippi River, uh, you would not be able to flourish along its banks. Richard Kaiser with our Alexandra Watts. That's Major General Richard Kaiser. Coming up, find out what you can do to keep highway workers safe on the job. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Palette to Palette is back with Chef Robert St. John and artist Wyatt Waters. Join us this week on Palette to Palette where we have breakfast with Martha Foos. And I get to go paint in Greenwood on Cotton Row. We visit the Grammy Museum and we have an awesome lunch at McCarty Pottery and Marigold in the heart of the Mississippi Delta. And then to Oxford later that evening to paint a sunset of the square. 
That's Pallet to Pallet. Thursday at 7.30 on MPB Television. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Mississippi Department of Transportation is spending this week directing special attention to highway worker safety. MDOT crews work only feet away from vehicles traveling at high speeds, and officials want motorists and workers to know the importance of how to navigate a work zone safely. Melinda McGrath is executive director of the Department of Transportation. At a presentation earlier this week, she says working on Mississippi's highways can be dangerous. In 2017, there were 132 highway workers killed in work zones across the nation. Last year in in Mississippi, there were 13 highway workers injured in work zones. McGrath says it's important to remember workers who have lost their lives. Today's ceremony is a solemn one, but it provides us an opportunity to reflect and remember our colleagues and their families and friends. It is also an opportunity to remind everyone to be more aware of sacrifices made by these state workers as they do their daily jobs. MDOT Executive Director Melinda McGrath. Central District Transportation Commissioner Dick Hall tells MPB's Jasmine Ellis drivers need to slow down when going through highway work zones. 75% of MDOT's 3,400 employees actually work on the highways, either doing construction or maintenance. It's an extremely dangerous position to be in. And it's the one week in the year that we we try to emphasize uh, the, the need for folks to slow down and pay attention to their to their um, to their activities, uh, particularly uh, watch for watch watch for the flaggers, uh, watch for signs, uh, and put down that telephone um, and slow down. Uh, so hopefully during this week we'll be able to to make the get everybody's attention to to do that. Fortunately, last year we did not lose any employees. But the year before, we lost four employees to, uh, to, to because somebody wasn't watching what they were doing driving to a work zone. So it's just our attempt to, to remind everybody of that. What are the conditions like for employees who are working in the field alongside traffic? Some have, have said it's, about, it's the same as building a multi-story building in the middle of a four-lane highway. Uh, it's, uh, you know, when cars... If cars are coming through there 60, 70 miles an hour, you can't stop them. I mean, the safety cones and signs and nothing's going to stop them. So it's up to the people. But I'll tell you what, what, might, what is surprising is there are more people that, uh, that get killed or seriously injured in a work zone that are driving the automobile or the passenger in the automobile. Um, and that's surprising to folks, but that's, that's what the statistics show. So you need to slow down to watch out for employees, but you also need to slow down and watch out for yourself. And why is this happening? Why are workers getting injured and being killed while they're doing their jobs? We have people get hurt and injured and are killed because people are not paying attention to what they're doing. I tell you, this cell phone is the worst problem of all. If you just take your eyes off the highway for just seconds and you're going 60 miles an hour, you're not going. To, you're not going to be able to slow down or stop if, if something if something unexpected happens. So you got to be watching, looking at the highway, not at your cell phone or, or fiddling with something, a hamburger that you picked up. So that's what we're trying to emphasize to everybody: pay attention to what you're doing, and that's driving that vehicle. <laughs> 
What role does the traveling public play in making sure that MDOT workers are kept safe? They, they are. The, 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 the role that the public plays is the most important role of all. They're the ones using the highways. Uh, if, if that, and that's the, that's the problem, that the people that are not paying attention while they're driving that vehicle. Uh, and if they, if they will pay attention, if they will slow down, if they will put down their telephone, we're not going to have any accidents. Uh, but uh, you can't imagine how scary it is out there on the highway with, with a car coming by. Our truck is going 60 or 70 miles an hour. You've got to slow down. What type of safety training do the crews have before they go out into the field? Oh, they're well well trained. Well, it's extreme. We spend, we, in fact, we spend more time than we used to doing that. Just, but but you get you reach a limit. Finally, even if the worker's there trained and he's watching what he's doing, uh, he or she, then uh, then he's, he's at the mercy of somebody driving down that highway. And he, and remember, these people out there working, that's somebody's mom and daddy or sister or brother or father or son. Or it, it's a, it's, it, it's, and then we want them to go home safely after, after the day of work. Uh, it, it, is, it, is a very, it, it is a dangerous occupation, and, and they don't get paid nearly what they, what they should. So just, I just don't know how to plead it enough. Just slow down, pay attention to what you're doing, and uh, put down that telephone. Thank you so much, Commissioner Dick Hall, for just talking to me about the conditions that highway workers are, are under and what the public can do to make sure that not just the highway workers but also themselves are kept safe when they're traveling on the highways. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, award-winning author Joe Watson-Hackle takes a smack dab in the middle of maybe. That's in this week's book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Normally, I don't recommend eavesdropping, but feel free to join in on my conversations. This week on Conversations, journalist Jerry Mitchell. The Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, I started finding out more about it. It was a state segregation spy agency back during the 60s and 70s. So I found out that all those records were sealed. And so that got me curiosity. It's like 132,000 pages of records. And so when I found that, I was like, there's something in there. Sundays at 5.30 and Thursdays at 10 on MPV Television. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. About 30 minutes north of Meridian is a ghost town called Electric Mills. There's not much left except some overgrown sidewalks and downed pillars. In today's book club, author Joe Watson Hackle takes younger readers to a fictionalized version of Electric Mills in her adventure, Smack Dab in the Middle of Maybe. I was born at Keesler Air Force Base on the coast of Mississippi. And when I was 11, my family moved to the overgrown ghost town of Electric Mills, Mississippi. Electric Mills was once called the brightest town east of St. Louis. It had electricity at a time in the South when no one else did. The plant was powered by electricity from burning the wood. And so the houses were powered, the offices were powered, They have very modern houses, a hospital, a theater, even an ice cream parlor. And people came from Meridian and other areas to visit this booming magic of a town. But when all the timber was harvested, they literally picked up most of the buildings and moved them on somewhere else. So when my family moved to Electric Mills, it was pretty much deserted. There were a couple of houses, and I lived in one while our house was being built. But... 
there was one thing that they couldn't pick up and take off, and that was the sidewalks. So I could walk forever on these thickly poured concrete sidewalks that took me past old home places. I could see the plantings that had been done in the front of the house, the hedges, the plantings that had been done in the back of the house, and the pillars that had once held up the houses. So for me, that was sort of a magical and mysterious place. And when I set out to write my novel, I very much wanted to bring readers to that place, to a fictionalized version of it, and introduce them to it. What ages does this book appeal to? Well, it's been interesting, Karen. The main character in the book is 12. But about half of the people that I've heard from have been grown-ups because the book combines my two favorite things, which are outdoor survival and outdoor adventure and an art mystery clue trail. The reader gets to solve the clue trail right alongside the main character, Cricket. What is the story around the clue trail? So the story takes readers on an adventure with 12-year-old Cricket, who runs away to live in an overgrown ghost town based on the real-life ghost town of Electric Mills, Mississippi, to try and solve a clue trail to find a secret room that may or may not exist. And the secret room is inspired by the real-life secret room that Mississippi artist Walter Anderson left when he died. I hope that your listeners, if they haven't been in the secret room, at least they've heard of it, because it is really a wonderful place. Does electric mills still exist in any form? It does. And I'm happy to report that thanks to the work of the Historical Society, a new plaque has just been erected in electric mills. So electric mills is on Highway 45 between Meridian and Columbus. And there's not a whole lot to see today unless you sort of know what you're looking for but you can still find the remnants of those thickly poured sidewalks. If you look a little bit, some of them have crumbled by now, and some are covered by leaves, but they're there. And you can still see some of the toppled over pillars. There's still one house, and you can see signs of this rich and vibrant town that once thrived in the area. I think you just inspired people to take a day trip (laughs) to check it out. You said this book appeals to adults, but you wrote it geared towards kids. Why did you choose that age for your audience? I think there's really something wonderful about a coming-of-age story, and this is a coming-of-age story, because when you are 11, 12, you're really making up your mind about how you're thinking of the world. And it was important to me as a writer to really speak to that age group and insert some challenges and adventure, but also some positivity into that age group as they are, you know, they're making up their mind about how the world works. And one of the great things that I love about the um, middle grade genre is you always give the reader hope. There may be challenges, and there's certainly challenges and bumps along the way, but you lead the reader with a hopeful ending to help, you know, lead them into their next reading adventure. And that was something that I very much enjoyed doing. And frankly, in writing it, I called on a lot of my own childhood experiences. The family dynamic in Cricket is fictionalized, but the connection with the outdoor world is very much a part of how I grew up. And I think there's something about Southerners. We have a unique connection to place. And I wanted to capture that in a book. And what better way to capture that 
than through the eyes of a 12-year-old girl who was surviving on her own and exploring and developing her own relationship to this place, the woods that she was initially quite scared of, but then really comes to love, as I came to love, the woods and the ghost town. Joe Watson Hackle is the author of Smack Dab in the Middle of Maybe. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure. And Joe Watson Hackle was just awarded the Southern Book Prize for Children's Fiction. Coming up at 9, Creature Comforts. At 10, Autocorrect. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Department of Archives and History for the special exhibit Spirits of the Passage, the story of the transatlantic slave trade, open now through August 11th. Details at 2 Mississippi Museum.